to the Starting With One podcast with Robin Bailey and Al McDonald. Our goal is to provide our audience with interesting, relevant information on Canadian healthcare, financial and estate planning issues, and running a business. With each episode, Robin and Al will be exploring topics that matter to you. Starting With One is built off of our experience that we enhance the lives of many starting with one. Every great story that we get to share all started with one phone call, one conversation, or one meeting. These are the stories that make us very proud to do what we do, and it all starts with one. Welcome back to the Starting With One podcast. I'm your host, Robin Bailey, along with my co-host and business partner, Al McDonald. Hey, Al. Hey, Robin. How are you today? I'm good. Happy Friday to you. Yeah, it's a beautiful day outside. We're inside, but we're here having a good time. We're inside for now, anyway. We'll uh, we'll be outside this afternoon, hopefully. So today we have a returning guest, Ian Ash, who's getting to be a real regular on the show these days. You know, it's almost as if people keep asking you to come back, Ian. I don't know how that happens, but people seem to be asking. So we got you back on the show. You're here to provide some more insights. Just as a reminder to our audience, Ian is a co-founder of Dig Insights. They are a market research and technology company in Toronto. And Ian is back to share more results from previous podcasts, I believe wave three with respect to COVID-19. So I think Ian's got a lot of great information to share today. So welcome back, Ian. Take Good it away. Good to see you again, Ian. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, I think this one's really interesting. So I did share some results last time, but I think this one is we really try to get deep into what we thought the world was going to look like in the future this time. And I'll just try to take you through some really top line numbers. And then I think we can get into a pretty interesting discussion around what people are saying, what their attitudes are, about what things are going to look like in the not too distant future. So uh, we interviewed 1,105 Canadians. By the way, we ran the same study in the U.S., but I'm going to share the Canadian results today. And we finished field on this one June 4th. So it was a kind of a funny time in market or in field. We didn't deal too much with, you know, the George Floyd murder or anything because that happened sort of during the time we were in field. But obviously that would have other impacts on society as well. Just who are we talking to? They had to live in Canada. They had to be 18 to 65 years old. And then within those, it was nationally representative by age, gender, and region. And we sort of have the screener to make sure we're talking to the same people. Then we go into awareness against overall levels of concern. Then we do the segmentation, which we talked a little bit about last time, but I'm not going to go into too much today. Some deep dive categories around financial services, insurance and stuff. Again, we're not going to go too much into that. But this is really interesting. We did this next normal section, and that's what I wanted to share with you today, which is sort of what are people planning to do in the future, even when things either recover or change. So if I'm going to just jump through this quickly, the overall trend in measures, what we saw was that there was generally growing optimism. So Fewer people were afraid of getting the virus and more people were feeling confident overall. However, there's still some things that were quite concerning. People are increasingly doubting that they can count on our government officials to lead us. So there's definitely some weakening in terms of their confidence in government. Some continue to worry about financial hardships, you know, the economy, even if virus counts are going down, the economy is definitely not recovered. And there's still a large portion of people who feel that they're depressed or overwhelmed. That's still 40% of the population. And just a reminder though, of course, not everybody experiences this the same way. And we found very different groups of people. Some people were kind of taking it all in stride and feeling fairly optimistic and saying, this is a chance to take things slowly and to you know, reflect on what's important in life. And then there's other people out there who are just, they're in a pretty rough situation. 
But again, if we look at some top line numbers, overall level of concern, you can see we're getting more people who are in this somewhat concerned bucket versus the very concerned. So that sort of the, that level of panic is decreasing. The fear that I might personally get sick with COVID-19 decreasing. I know someone who has been diagnosed with COVID-19 has stayed steady. So it's not like we've seen big increases in the percentage of people who have been personally affected. And some of these other measures have basically stayed the same. Talking about COVID-19 though, on wave one, we saw 75% of people said they were talking about COVID-19 a lot. And 24% said they were talking about COVID-19 a little. By wave three, only 57% of people say that they're talking about COVID-19 a lot. So it's no longer the number one thing that they're talking about. There's a lot of other things that are now occurring and that's what they're talking about. But in contrast, what's very concerning here is I trust our government officials to lead us through this. Back in wave one, 62% of people agreed with that statement. Wave two, 60%, and now wave three, 53%. So that's like a nine point drop in terms of the percentage of people who feel uh, confident that the government's going to be able to lead us through this. And that's definitely problematic. Ian, just uh, wanted to touch on the one at the, at, at the top of, of your screen there, you're saying people are on a percentage basis are talking less about COVID-19 these days. So I'm very hopeful as an employer and, and obviously somebody who looks after employee benefits, I'm hoping that means the mental health of plan members is improving as well. Yeah, we didn't see a, a big difference in the percentage of people who said they were feeling depressed, but I, it's certainly helpful. I know personally, and again, anecdotally, my anxiety level is not where it was, right? If we look at the economy overall, of our sample, a full quarter of people said that they'd applied for CERB, and of those who'd applied, 92% said they'd received CERB. But, you know, I'm worried I won't be able to make my mortgage payments, for example. In wave one, 30% of people had that concern. And by wave three, that's down to 24%. So things have kind of stabilized to a certain degree. And overall confidence that people feel that they're going to be able to cope with the financial impacts of the current economy, it's pretty much on par with wave two. But the general trend is improving there as well. So people are a little bit less anxious overall. But the percentage of people who think that the economy will be strong in six months, for instance, it was 24% in wave one, it's 24% in wave three. Like back in April, it was 24%. Now in June, it's 24%. People feel this is going to be a problem for a while. And I think that's probably, you know, unfortunately a realistic expectation. No one thinks this is going to turn around quickly. That belief that there's going to be this massive V-shaped recovery seems to, it's not really materializing with individuals. So I'm just going to jump through some really top line numbers on awareness, and then I'm going to get into the really interesting stuff, I think, anyways. So... If we look at the percentage of people who are discussing COVID, we already saw this, it's decreased. Preparation, the percentage who feel that they're very or somewhat prepared, it's decreased a little bit since wave two went from 90 to 87, but generally speaking, 87% of people feel that they're prepared. Physical distancing has stayed the same. People are actively physically distancing, but this overall level of concern, again, it was 91% in wave two, it's down to 85% in wave three. So somewhat are very concerned. And we saw there was more difference in that very concerned number went down as well. So generally speaking, all positive things in terms of people's mental state, at least. Most people are confident. These numbers haven't changed a ton, but most people are relatively confident that their businesses that they work for will be able to cope with the downturn. That stayed relatively the same. It improved since wave one, but wave two, wave three, pretty similar. And then if we just look at Concern about the current wave and then concern about a 
a second wave. Concern about a second wave hasn't really changed. About 45% of people say they're very concerned about a second wave of COVID-19, and that hasn't changed from April. It's been 45, 46, 45, all the way since April. But concern about the current wave has decreased. So all positive things. So this is where I think things get really interesting. So we looked at all of the articles that we could find online. What were all of those articles that people were writing about things that they thought the next normal was going to look like? You know, people aren't going to do this anymore. People are going to start doing that. And then we took the ones that we thought people could actually answer questions about. <laughs> because, you know, you can't ask people, do you think venture capital firms are going to stop investing in high growth companies that don't have strong balance sheets? You're not going to get a good answer. And you can't ask, generally speaking, do you think the world is going to be a more green place after COVID-19? They might be able to answer, but is it a realistic point of view? So we focused on the things we thought they could answer. So the, this first uh, chart, which is super busy, and I know you're going to air this as a podcast, so I'll try to explain it quickly and get some top line numbers. We asked people from the list of activities below, what did you do at least occasionally before the COVID-19 crisis? So the first thing is they had to at least say on occasion they did things like I ate at a buffet style restaurant, I go to large public gatherings, I tried free food samples at Costco, a lot of people do that. And then which of these would you continue to actively avoid once restrictions are lifted? So now what we're looking at is a base of people who say, I used to do it before, COVID stopped me from doing it, and I'm still going to avoid it after COVID restrictions are lifted. And I think that is a very top line number is very interesting. So of those people who used to go to buffet style restaurants, a full 58% of people say they're going to avoid that after restrictions are lifted. And if we go all the way down to the other end of that list, people who used to do active outdoor activities, only 16% of people say they're going to avoid that after restrictions are lifted. One that one that jumps out immediately on on my screen, uh, Ian, is going into work. Yes, and I think I think a lot of other employers out there are, are struggling with what the answer is and, and what the best way to move forward is. Absolutely, and we're going to talk about that again in a moment. The percentage of people who want to continue to stay working from home is is really high, and I think you know some interesting stuff came up recently around Facebook trying to adjust pay based on if they live in an urban area or not. I think it's going to have a whole bunch of employment law impacts in the near term. And then what is the minimum milestone? So if they said, I'm still going to avoid it. So again, let's choose one. Going to amusement parks. 44% of people say they're going to avoid going to amusement parks. And then we said, okay, what is the minimum milestone that must be met before you would feel comfortable doing each of the following activities again? And we gave them the following options. I'll never go back. I have to have some kind of immunity, like I've had an immunity test and, I've, and I tested positive for antibodies. There's good treatments out there, like you know, there's a whole bunch of treatments coming out all the time, but there's one that you know, really decreases the mortality rate. There's a vaccine, no new cases for 14 days, or mandatory social distancing and masks. It's something that the government actually forces people to do that. So, I think there's some interesting differences across many of these. I think the most interesting one is never go back. So eating at a buffet style restaurant, 58% of people said, I'm going to avoid that even after you lift the restrictions. And then of those people, 8% said, I'll never go back. 
I will never go back. So I think Mandarin is in serious trouble. That's a business model that's going to have to be completely revisited because they're not going to last the four years or whatever it's going to take for people to finally get calm again. I'm even thinking, as, as you're saying that, Ian, I'm, I'm even thinking about when you book a trip down to the Caribbean and you know you say, oh, well, we'll just eat at the buffet tonight. I imagine places like that will have to rethink how they're handling customers. Absolutely. I mean, even almost the same thing, buying from salad bars or hot counters, 8%. I'm never going to do it again. Interesting. You know, right away, you're losing almost 10% of customers. They're just saying, I'm never going back. And then on top of that, you've got another 16% saying, I'm not going to go back to a buffet style restaurant until you've got a vaccine. We talked earlier before the interview about uh, Las Vegas. I mean, <laughs> Las Vegas is built on buffets. Absolutely. People are not going to go into buffets. <laughs> Another one. So going to a concert, it skews younger. Concert goers skew younger. So, you know, a full 11% of them will go back. Of those who have avoided it all, which is still half, 51%, but 11% will go back if they had an immunity test and they found that they had it. 11% would go back if there was some kind of treatment. So, you know, 22% immunity or treatment, they're going back. 15% are going to wait for a vaccine. I mean, vaccine is the biggest for many of these. And then in some cases, just the treatment, like going to a dance club. So I think what's interesting is these things that skew to younger audiences already, like dance clubs, concerts, bars, they're not looking for that same threshold necessarily. They're avoiding it now. But if things just get a little bit better, they're going to be okay. But other things that skew to all ages, like buffet restaurants, large public gatherings, those people are looking for a much higher threshold. And particularly, you know, trying free food samples at Costco, 17% of people are not going to do that until there's a vaccine. And 13% of people are never going to do it again. <laughs> so what I think I'm hearing is the NHL and Major League Baseball and those professional sports venues, they're in trouble. Yeah, I think they already know they're in trouble, but you're right. Going to live sports games, only 4% of people say they'll never go back, but a full 14% of people are waiting for a vaccine. Going into work, only 17% of people said that they were going to avoid going back to work after the restrictions were lifted. So I think part of this is going to be driven by employers' decisions. There's definitely going to be some people who are going to staunchly be against it, but I think it's more about a preference than a refusal. Another thing that was very interesting is we said, which of these things did you do before the pandemic, and which of these things did you do for the first time during a pandemic? And when I say these things, I mean things like signing up and using a streaming service like Netflix, buying clothes online and having them delivered, signing up and using Amazon Prime. I mean, a lot of people already did these things. And in most cases, a lot of them are going to do the same or more of it. Very rarely is somebody going to do less of it. You know, a little bit on subscribe to fresh mail kit delivery service, 24% say they're going to need less of it after the restrictions are lifted or after the pandemic ends. But I think what's more interesting is did for the first time. So there's three things in specific. Consulting with a doctor online or via phone, only 11% of people said they'd done that before the pandemic. 32% of people did it for the first time during the pandemic. And of those people who said they'd done it for the first time during a pandemic, almost half of them. 48% would like to continue doing it after. And there's been some talk about this, but the pandemic has really driven some changes in a few key areas that are very likely to continue after the crisis ends. And that would be telemedicine, 
Using curbside pickup for non-grocery items, like at Canadian Tire, 31% of people tried it for the first time during the pandemic, and 46% of those people would like to continue after the pandemic. And then curbside pickup, click and collect for groceries. 20% first time ever during the pandemic, and of those, a full half would like to continue after. So these key industries, click and collect, curbside pickup, grocery delivery, 16% of people, 48% of people. So people have found that shopping, getting it delivered or curbside pickup, they weren't going to necessarily do it. They were forced to do it by the pandemic. And obviously it was really convenient and they'd like to continue doing it and telemedicine. So those are two big places that are going to be really forced to innovate sort of forever. Things will not rebound to where they were to the same level that they might hope. You can count me into those last two, uh, you know, specifically the doctor. I had, I had a consult the other day and, and that's all it was. So, you know, when I thought about it, to go into the office, sit with a bunch of people, you know, probably behind time. Instead, it was a phone call. Uh, the phone call actually happened two minutes early and it took about 15 minutes on the phone and then I was done. And I thought, wow, <laughs> this is way better than having to, you know, drive back from work, leave early, sit in the waiting room for 20 minutes and then have a 10 minute meeting. So right. I, I totally understand that. I think what would be interesting too is because I know private clinics have been doing this for a long time. So MedCan, I don't remember what the other one's called, but... Uh, Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic, yeah. They've been doing it for a long time. So will more people be prepared to pay a premium to get telemedicine if it doesn't become the norm for those doctors who are only paid through OHIP? I don't know. That would be an interesting question to ask. From an employee benefits perspective, it's, these numbers are really interesting because for years, I mean, everything that ha happens south of our border eventually comes to us. And I, I would have conversations with my colleagues in the U.S. And they, and they would say, you know, telemedicine is really growing. You're going to see a huge uptick. And for years, Ian, we just didn't see it in Canada. So prior to COVID-19, the penetration in the employee benefits market for telemedicine was 9%. That's it. And I mean, you've seen the massive growth since. And I mean, your numbers are supporting that not only were they using it during the pandemic, a big proportion of those people are going to continue to use that going forward as well. So it, it's had massive growth. Yeah, this was really interesting. And then the next few slides I'm going to jump through quickly because there's just too many numbers and they're painful to look at. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to explain them via phone, but I'm going to explain how I asked the questions. So for this next question, We'll show you a series of statements and using the scale below, please tell us how much you agree or disagree with this statement. And then we asked a bunch of statements around government, supply chain, corporations, buying local, the media, landlords, vaccination, remote work, travel, cash, long-term behavioral and mental impacts, inconspicuous consumption. And we took each of those on the scale of I strongly agree to I strongly disagree. And so if I start right at the very beginning, if I start on uh, this first page here, looking at statements related to government, we asked three statements. We said, our government is going to have a lot more power over our lives for this foreseeable future. And what we see is that 13% of people strongly agreed, 41% of people somewhat agreed. For a net top two box, which is what we use for agreement, of 54% of people agreeing with that statement. So more than half of the population 
believes that the government is going to have a lot more power over our lives for this foreseeable future than they have historically. And that's potentially problematic when we also look at levels of trust. And we showed you how those had been in decline in overall trust that they could get us through the pandemic. But we asked these very specific questions. We said, I don't trust that the government is telling us the whole truth about COVID-19. A full 44% of the population believes that the government is withholding or not telling the full truth around COVID-19. Very problematic. And then governments will need to take away a lot of our privacy rights in order to fight COVID-19. And specifically what I was kind of getting at here was, you know, in some more totalitarian countries, the COVID, you know, the tracing apps, you didn't have a choice. It went on your phone. Obviously, our government's taking a much more liberal stance, I guess, and saying you choose to put it on your phone. So, you know, thankfully, that's only 33%. Only 7% of people agree that we're going to have to give up privacy for the sake of security. And so I could go through all of these. There's tons of statements. But what I did, or what we did, was we took all of these statements and we put them on this grid. And this is where I think we can have the most interesting conversation. We had to make some qualitative decisions here, but it's all based on the statements that we saw. We took all of those big themes that we saw in media and we put them on this two by two matrix. So along the Y axis, we have the likelihood to be part of the next normal. So how likely do we think this is going to be something that's going to persist? Either it's a high probability or a low probability. On the X axis, we looked at the impact on society. Either it's going to have a lot of impact on society or it's going to have a relatively low impact in society. So I'll take one, for example, the downfall of influencer culture. I don't know if you guys saw like the Gal Gadot video, for instance, it was a while ago now where she sang Imagine with a bunch of other celebrities and it went over like a rock, like it was just absolutely cringeworthy. As a result of that, there was a whole bunch of articles where people were saying, influencers are out of touch. We don't want to see somebody podcasting or streaming from their mansion and telling me that we're all in this together. And so there was, there was a lot of chatter around that time that influencer culture is going to come to an end. What we found was that only 34% of people agreed that celebrities and influencers are completely out of touch during the crises. So I would have expected that number to be significantly higher if we thought it was something that was going to fundamentally change the way that advertisers were using influencers online. However, 43% do agree I have a lower opinion of many celebrities due to how they acted. But that's many celebrities. So I might have a lower opinion of, you know, Gal Gadot, but maybe it didn't impact my perception of, of Sean Penn or somebody. It's not universal. I just chose the most random celebrity there, by the way. I don't think anybody talks about Sean Penn anymore, but corporate empathy messaging. You know, these are relatively low impacts on society, right? Like these, these are going to be fleeting things. Corporate empathy messaging, again, saw a lot of articles written, stop it with the thank you ads to the frontline workers. It comes off as insincere. Well, no, the population doesn't really agree. 63% agree, I like ads that thank frontline workers and healthcare professionals. However, 30% did agree that they thought they were insincere and fake, but I think it's a mixed bag. And then only 26% agreed that they were tired of these ads. So there's no support here that these things need to go away anytime soon. The thanking frontline workers ads, I think, are doing what they were meant to do, which was, you know, engender goodwill towards the companies that do it. Now, if we look at some things that are going to have big impact and are very probable to continue into the future. Big government intervention, again, 
54% of people agreeing our government is going to have a lot more power over our lives for the foreseeable future, that's going to have big impacts on our lives. The amount of power the governments are able to wield over us hasn't happened since World War II. And it's going to continue to happen. And given that there's growing distrust in all of North America, particularly in the U.S., but also in Canada, that's a problem. The mandatory vaccination debate. 58% of people in our survey agreed that if a vaccine was available today, I would take it. And 49% agree if or when a vaccine becomes available, taking it should be mandatory by law. I'm not going to attack anybody's individual stance on this, but only 60% of the population saying they're going to take a vaccine when it's available. Given the estimates for herd immunity almost never wander south of 60%. That's scary. And when you've got a full half of the population saying it should be legal, that means there's a other half of the population that doesn't think it's legal. Now you've got an even split down the center of our society on whether or not something should be legally mandated. That's a debate. So I think this is going to be one of the biggest things that's going to completely occupy public discourse and the legal profession as soon as some viable vaccines come out. It's going to be mayhem. Yeah, I've got to confess I'm a little surprised by those numbers that they would be higher, but that's just me. Yeah. And just FYI, I've seen very similar numbers from other companies. Did you say companies or countries? Companies and countries. In the U.S., okay. the numbers are very similar. almost Interesting. And also other companies that have put out polling data around right. the percentage of people who say they take the vaccine, again, very stable across polls, across companies. Is there a reason behind that? Or do you just stop at the, at the question? Like, do people say, well, I would take it if I knew it was safe, but maybe at the beginning, I'm not sure it's safe or something like that. Or do you, do you know? Yeah, we didn't ask those follow-up questions in the study because we tried to cover so much ground. But yeah. in the stuff that I've read, it seems like it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some people say, I don't trust it because of the way that they're trying to speed the regulation process along. So they're doing right. it too quickly. I don't trust that it's going to be safe. But then there's also just a very large percentage of people who either don't like vaccines, have been confused by all of the anti-vaxxer messaging that's been out for the past few years, or just, uh, I don't need to take it. You know, if you look at the type of public response that was taken and was required to get rid of things like mumps, rubella, measles, that's the level that we need again. And if yeah. we don't meet that threshold, this is going to be around for a very, very long time. Yeah. Another one that I think is a big deal is inconspicuous consumption. So we had people uh, agree with the statement, people shouldn't show off their wealth during the recession. Over half the population thinks that people shouldn't show off their wealth during the recession. And a full 21%, so one in five, agreed with a statement that I thought was pretty extreme. So I would have actually expected that number to be lower. People should hide any big new purchases from others during the recession. So you buy a new car, one in five people say you should keep that in the garage and don't take it out. John Maynard Keynes had uh, the paradox of thrift. One of his theories was that during recessions, when too many people act thrifty, it prolongs the pain, it prolongs the recession. He defined thriftiness along mostly around savings. So you take the money, you put it in your mattress or you put it in a bank account you don't spend it, that actually ends up having a much more negative impact than you, than you intend for it to have. And there's also been what, numerous white papers written and a couple of books are quite interesting that talked about the Great Depression. 
And one of the theories there was that the Great Depression was definitely prolonged, or according to their supposition, was prolonged because of a general sense of thriftiness. So not just people saving money, but also people of means. This is the first time really during the Great Depression that they started doing things like wearing jeans because they didn't want to display their wealth. They wanted to seem blue collar, which anything else was a faux pas at the time. And that type of behavior can be very, very damaging to economic recoveries. And I think maybe the downfall of influencer culture isn't a big deal. But when we start shaming people for buying a new Camry, we're in big trouble. So I find this really, really concerning. In-home meals, the growth of in-home meals is going to, you know, replacing more out-of-home meals. 64% agree, I'll eat more food made at home after the pandemic is over. So there's so many strong headwinds against restaurants and so much suffering in that industry. And it's not just one thing. It's not just fear. It's also that people made, have been cooking so much more at home. And a lot of people discovered that they liked it. A lot of people discovered that they saved a lot of money. Perhaps good for our health, terrible for the restaurant industry. And it doesn't look like it's going to recover anytime soon. And when you have that coupled with the fact that they're going to have to basically cut their occupancy in half in dining rooms, I just feel terrible for restaurant owners. So to me, that what you were just talking about there, the statistics that you are citing makes total sense to me. Now, ironically, when uh, I did talk to people who, when the restrictions were finally lifted last, last weekend, guess what the first thing was that they wanted to do? Yeah, they wanted to go to a restaurant. They wanted to go to a restaurant and hit the patio and, and uh, at least try to be back into that type of environment somewhat, right? So it, it does make sense in the long run that what you're saying here would play out. But uh, I think in the short term, there were a lot of people wanting to head back to that patio. I've seen a lot of uh, posts on social media to prove that, Al. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I miss it. I would love to go back to restaurants. But I do think, again, anecdotally, it's better for me to eat at home. I've cooked more meals at home. I've got more recipes now that I think I won't completely destroy and make inedible. And generally speaking, I would prefer to go to restaurants more sparingly. Yeah. And I think that's exactly it. I mean, I, uh, I had the conversation with my wife. If we could do anything we wanted today, the first thing on both our lists, and we said the same restaurant, that's, where we would, that's what we want to do and that's where we want to go. But you're absolutely right. I think everyone looks at, hey, I'm, I'm saving money. We're spending more time at the family dinner table and, and everyone's here and we're not running around like, you know, chickens with their heads cut off, which is, you know, the normal lifestyle where one parent's out the door with one kid to go somewhere and when the other parent's out the door, the thought of making a meal or sitting around the, the kitchen table and eating together, <laughs> it was hardly, hardly ever happened. And, and now it is, right? So I think it's probably going to be a combination of both. But yeah, I, I agree 100%. I will eat more food made at home after the pandemic is over, for sure. A few things that I found surprising, end of cash. There's been a lot of articles written about the idea that, you know, this is going to like death of paper money, death of coins. It's too easy to transmit the virus over those types of medium. When's the last time you used cash, Dean? Yeah, not very frequently. I'm going to say it's probably been a month. Yeah. I took $40 out of the bank probably, I don't know, at least two months ago, and $20 of it is still in my wallet. Yeah. And I don't know where the other $20 went. 
Yeah, so I mean, but only 22% agree, I do not think I will ever feel comfortable using paper money in the future. And, you know, we do uh, work for Interact Association, we also work for a lot of banks. There is a portion of the economy and there's a percentage of the population that is very cash loyal. And it does not appear that this is going to be going away anytime soon, regardless of the dangers of the virus. People are not going to give up their cash. So I found that a bit surprising. Another thing, we talked a little bit about long-term mental health issues. We judge this as sort of a a middling, like lower probability to last for a very long time, but sort of a mid-impact on society generally. Long-term mental health issues, 33%, so a third of the population said, I will have lasting anxiety due to my experiences during the pandemic. And I I can see that to a certain degree, like going to stores can sometimes be a pretty uncomfortable experience. And I think that some people have taken that very hard. There's a third of the population says, I'm going to feel like this for a long time. I'm going to be scared. I'm going to be scared to be on a bus. I'm going to be afraid to go into a store. Not great. (laughs) But, you know, I think over time, likely, that will probably dissipate to a certain degree. But they don't think it's going away anytime soon. Remote work. Again, we we judge that in that same quadrant, sort of mid-impact on uh, society, but slightly lower probability of it lasting for a very long time or being a huge impact. 56% 56% agree, even when workplaces reopen, I would prefer to keep working from home. I mean, that's massive in terms of the total workplace population. Over half, 56% of people would like to keep working from home. It's just that there's a whole other side of that equation, which is the employer's decisions and how they're going to enforce changes to compensation. How are they going to get rid of corporate real estate? You know, there's a, there's a lot of structural things in that that I think make it hard for it to just suddenly become a reality. But the desire is there. Over half of workers would like to keep working from home. It's just if Facebook is successful in saying, I'm going to pay you less because you don't live in the city, how many people are going to actually do it? We can talk about a few more of these, but I think one more that I think is really interesting is increased corporate social responsibility. And we've seen this all over social media. Like we've seen, you know, not just with the COVID-19 crisis, also with the George Floyd murder and the systemic racism, 74% of people agree large corporations need to play a bigger role in making the world better. So A, there's this demand. They want more from big corporations. They want you to be a corporate citizen, not just provide me a good product. They also want you to be a good influence on, on the world, right? And then they also, this increased scrutiny on business. So 57% of people, again, this is more than half, Corporations should be investigated for workers' rights and economic violations after COVID-19 specifically. And 52% agree large corporations are greedy and are risking people's lives for profits during the pandemic. These are dangerous. These attitudes are potentially dangerous. And and in some cases, they'll address inequities. In other cases, it just makes such an obvious scapegoat for government. You know, it's really easy, particularly if a government is distrusted and disliked, to start going after big corporations and saying they're the ones who are responsible for some of these hardships, that would obviously resonate really well with the public, and that could be problematic. One last one, increased local tourism. 59% agree. I plan on vacationing much closer to home for the foreseeable future. Not surprising. But 52% agree. I will only take vacations to locations I can drive to in the foreseeable future. So, you know, I think particularly in Canada, in Ontario, you know, we famously have the snowbirds. I'm not going to Miami Beach anytime soon. But there is not the same investment in tourism in Ontario that there is in 
southern destinations with warmer weather. That may end up being a real opportunity for developers because I want to go on vacation. I have money to spend on vacation, but I'm not going to leave the country. I'm not even going to go anywhere I can't drive to. Where are my options? A few things stand out that surprise me a little bit. But I would say most of that information that you shared with us, it kind of makes sense to me that people would, would think that way. So I, I can't say I'm surprised by a lot of it. It backs up kind of a lot of the things that I'm feeling and, and that I'm thinking about, you know, going forward, what, th- what are things going to look like? And, and I got to admit, there's a lot of stuff on, in here that we've talked about that I would, I would agree 100% with. I, you know, I would have been one of the ones answering the same way as the majority, but a couple of surprising ones. What were some of the ones you thought were, uh, were surprising? More of the degree. And, uh, you know, we talked about, for example, vaccination, you know, the 58%. I would have thought that would be higher. I would have thought that under the current conditions, if someone said today, hey, we got a vaccine, I would have expected lineups around the block, right, to, to try and get it. So that to me is a little bit surprising that like it's almost at the 50-50 level, like you said. To me, that's the scariest thing from this entire study. I mean, that's going to be a massive debate. Yeah, and it is obviously one of the things that, you know, if you had a 100% safe vaccine, and again, you know, I'm sure people are always going to argue about that, but if you had a 100% safe vaccine and everyone took it, problem solved. You know, and the problem is there's a proclivity within the population in general to distrust governments, to distrust big corporations, obviously, to distrust big pharma. Well, yeah. And... Everything you see plays into that. Every time somebody goes online and says vaccines give you autism, it adds to that distrust. It creates concern and cynicism, and it fuels that problem or that debate. And I think it's gotten to a point where it didn't matter before COVID-19, perhaps. You know, we saw some breakouts of things like measles that really shouldn't have occurred in particular states in the U.S., but it's just so important now. And I'm not sure how we deal with it. How do you do it without infringing on individuals' rights to do what they want to their own bodies? I don't know. Things, obviously, that you have here that you said is 52% agree that large corporations are greedy and are risking people's lives for profits during the pandemic. Well, guess who's making the vaccinations? Large corporations that you think are greedy and that you think are risking people's lives. So, uh, you know, the two make sense. If you don't trust the corporation, it would make sense that maybe you don't think that the vaccine is safe and that it's just might make you worse so that it's it's done for profit. But at the same time, if you do believe it's safe, gosh, I would hope that people would be lining up to get it. Yeah. And, you know, this, you know, we just dealt with things that related to COVID-19. But I mean, in the past, I've seen studies that deal with all kinds of things like the percentage of people who think that human beings coexisted with the dinosaur, or the percentage of people that think that we never walked on the moon, or that there's always a surprisingly high number of people who believe relatively crazy conspiracies. Not to editorialize, but come on. We didn't fake the moon landing. Like anything, Ian, I think, especially in Canada here, we're influenced by our neighbors to the south. And I think, you know, that distrust from large corporations as well, in particularly the government, when we find out that certain information was withheld from the public, that does nothing to support our trust of our government here, even though it's happening in the States. Yeah, and I think it didn't help the confusion about wearing a mask. Yeah. I think that really damaged credibility. For the longest time, they're like pretty much saying, don't wear a mask. They weren't saying you didn't need to, they were saying don't. And then suddenly it turned 180 and they said, wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, you're... that was damaging your credibility. That was, I think, a fairly major misstep. We want to wrap up. Any final thoughts on uh, on what we've got? 
No, I think, you know, there's a lot more in here. Well, we have the, the report viewable for free as an embedded PDF on our site. I hope you guys found this conversation interesting. Okay, yeah. so people can actually look at this information that you've got put together that we can see, but if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see, but they can uh, go onto your site and look at it. Yeah. How do uh, they get there? Diginsights.com, and then just go to our COVID-19 page. Perfect. All right, very good. Ian, thanks as always for coming on the show. I don't even have to ask. I know you're going to be back on the show with more information because people are going to ask you to come back anyway. So let's just book that in advance. That does it for today, folks. I hope you enjoyed this one. Al and I both really enjoy our conversations with Ian on and offline. If you need to find out more about Ian, you will not have a tough time finding him on LinkedIn. He's got some of the best posts on that platform. So be sure to follow him. We'll be back again soon with another episode. And until then, remember, it all starts with one. Thank you.